When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. And welcome to Recall This Book, where we invite scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. This is the roundup episode for Violent Majorities, Indian and Israeli Ethno-Nationalism, which you know by now was hosted by two fabulous anthropologists. Hello, fabulous anthropologists, Ajanta Subramanian and Lori Allen. So that makes this, I guess, a kind of three-host night. So in episode one, Ajanta and Lori spoke with um, Balmurli Nadrajan about such fascinating topics as the slippery slope to a multiculturalism of caste in India, while in episode two, just uh, two weeks ago, Natasha Roth-Roland joined them to discuss territorial maximalism in the Israeli right and whether the most extreme ethno-nationalists should be seen as radical non-state actors or as indissolubly wedded to established political ruling parties. So if you haven't listened to those yet, I think you should just hit pause right now and listen to them. So you have one second, go. Okay, you're back. Great. Today, Ajanta and Lori and I are going to discuss our findings uh, with me playing the role of ingenue or dumb rube, which, as listeners will know, comes extremely naturally to me, giving them a chance to emphasize and also unpack further what they think are the key ideas from those conversations and ideally, I think, to build the bridge between them. So before we dive in, let me just... um, guestify our two hosts. So Ajanta is professor at CUNY Graduate Center, and she's a historical anthropologist specializing in the political economy of caste. Her work includes Shorelines, Space and Rights in South India, Stanford uh, 2009, and the Caste of Merit, Engineering, Education in India, Harvard University Press, Harvard University Press 2019, which analyzes meritocracy as a terrain of caste struggles in India and its implications for democratic transformation, and additionally was the subject of Recall This Book 22 back in February 2020 before the dark, highly, highly recommended, just before the dark. And Laurie Allen is an independent scholar and professorial research associate at SOAS University of London. Her work includes a 2013 book from Stanford, The Rise and Fall of Human Rights, Cynicism and Politics in Occupied Palestine, and A History of False Hope, investigative commissions in Palestine, also Stanford 2020. They are both brilliant beyond words. I can't wait to get started. And I'm just hoping, Agenta, maybe you could start us off with something that you wanted to single out as particularly illuminating from the talk that you and Laurie had with Murley. Sure. Um, so there was a lot in that conversation with Murley. Um, I think one thing that was super helpful um, was his characterization of the Hindu nationalist project um, as having a kind of twofold structure. So he talked about how in the effort to manufacture hegemony, um, that this project treats Muslims and Dalits, so Dalits are the sort of former untouchables of India, that it that the project treats them differentially. 
right? So it it constructs the Muslim as the racialized external other and the Dalit as, as the ethnicized internal other. Um, and it, what was particularly striking was he said that the, that the racialization of the Muslim, which actually draws upon, quite explicitly draws upon kind of fascist uh, discourses about the Jew uh, in the early 20th century. Uh, and I think we'll get to that later. But um, he said that the racialization of the Muslim is actually easier to accomplish um, and that often it's done through the use of both state and vigilante violence. Uh, but that the that the the making of the Hindu us, so the, the making of the Muslim them is easier to accomplish, but the making of the Hindu us through the incorporation of Dalits and other populations is actually much harder. Um, and the way he put it was, uh, Hindutva has a harder time constructing the people, right? Um, the people that is the key to growing it from an elite project into a mass movement, right? And this is because so many of the constituent parts of the Hindu us, so not just Dalits, but a whole bunch of others, are recalcitrant subjects, <laughs> right? Um, and so, you know, for him, the, this project uh, consists of this constant back and forth between claiming these recalcitrant groups as part of a national majority, the Hindu us, um, and deeming them anti-national or part of the ever-expanding them when they refuse to comply, right, with Hindu nationalist ideology. So this kind of, and this instability of the boundary between the us and the them um that that's the easiest way to stabilize that boundary is violence right so i think these were some of the things which which for me were most provocative um about the the conversation with him and i think it also connects well to uh the conversation about israel yeah. right cuz i think you know in the israel case you also have this tension around, tension around who is the us and who is the them yeah and the them can be this sort of ever expanding category right that at one moment might be just the muslim and the palestinian but at another moment could be could also include the liberal the secularist the the queer the whatever 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 right yeah can i actually follow up a little bit on that just that first move agenda about your because i think you're saying something more than just that sort of straightforward thing that people often say about um, uh, sort of nationalist focused governments, which is that they work well on a friend foe distinction, that sort of Carl Schmidian move of making mm -hmm. the out like that it's easier to demonize than it is to consolidate. Um, yes. But but you're actually saying something more about the like slipperiness of the need uh, for especially, I guess, Dalits, to both be inside and outside of the body. Is that right? I mean, is that that they are... I, I'm trying to connect this to that phrase of his that you know I love, which is the slippery slope of the multiculturalism of caste, like the way yes. in which there you can account for caste as a form of cultural diversity, which yes, allows you yes, to do yes. this sort of double work. Yeah. Right. So, that, I mean, that's what he means by ethnicization, right? That yeah. ethnicization is... Uh, the idea of horizontal difference, right? Mm -hmm. Right, that it's a kind of uh, obscuring of the violence of hierarchy, right? So caste is 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 a is a particularly important sticking point 
for the Hindu Nationalist Project because it's very difficult to talk about caste as anything other than violent hierarchy. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to ethnicize the Dalit is to somehow obscure that reality of caste, right? And to make uh, the coexistence of different castes into a form of happy multiculturalism. Hindutva has become more of a mass politics, right? Especially in the last 30 years. Uh, So groups that you think would have been far more resistant and would have seen through uh, these overtures, (laughs) right? Um, Have actually become conscripted into this project. So obviously there's something that it's offering them, right? and I mean, he had sort of different takes on what that might be, right? So, I mean, he talked about um, kind of disenfranchised youth, right? Uh, men in particular who, 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 who derive a sense of satisfaction and pride from being foot soldiers, right? Uh, uh, in this project. Ooh, didn't we hear about hilltop youth in Israel? I wonder if yes. there's a connection there. There's a connection. Um, I think it's really important to understand the kind of ego satisfaction that's given to especially men and young men through um, these kind of violent thug groups that go out and assert themselves and are seen to give them prestige as well as standing within their communities. In terms of the hilltop youth, which are, you know, the kind of Israeli young men thugs, um, I don't know if, I mean, I I think there is some research that shows that a lot of these people are folks from lower rungs of society that are being, feel like they're being given or are taking a place in society that is important, right? Important to the nation to, to such an extent that the Israeli army has in fact started to try to incorporate them as I mean, they wouldn't call it this, but uh, shock troops, essentially, yeah. in the West Bank. Um, but I think I was just hoping that we would move to this kind of materialist analysis and not just rely on kind of the ideological categories. I think that in Israel, one of the dynamics that Natasha helped us understand was the way that what was far right or more radically right gets co-opted into the state and the what is the center and what is the right is constantly shifting ever rightwards. And there isn't, I don't think, a parallel kind of um, hierarchization of Judaism or Zionism. Obviously, I mean, the Ashkenazi have traditionally had more economic power and political power, but the whole point is that in both of these projects, but both of these ethno-nationalist projects, the goal is political hegemony. And the place of the state in that goal has changed over time for different groups, whether or not they are committed to the state or are anarchist and outside the state, like Natasha described the Hilltap Youth as. Um, But the point is that they want to redeem the land, however they are defining that, in a politically hegemonic way, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she actually said that the Hilltop Youth uh, were could almost be thought of as anarchists at one point, right? That they were anti-state. Um, 
and they've since become the state. So, yeah, so so that that was one instance, or even the the natalist policies that were so central to the far right, right? Uh, this idea of demographic warfare. I mean, that was the other thing that she said was widely shared, right? Um, so, I think yeah. when you scratch beneath, when you scratch the surface, you see that the that the ideological spectrum is not so much a spectrum as a kind of set of shared principles. <laughs> but but I think what what the distinction is is these different far right groups have a different orientation towards the state at different moments. And so the Hilltop Youth are a group who were, she said, had been um, hostile to the state. And she described them as even a kind of anarchist, as Jenther recalled. But what I'm pointing to is the fact that even they are also getting incorporated into the state. Similarly with, you know, the religious right has slowly, slowly become increasingly powerful within the Israeli army and the military services. They yeah. have, because of their kind of greater discipline, apparently risen in the ranks. And so there are more religious right officers within the army. So, so, in all these different ways, we're seeing elements of the state be taken over by the far or extreme right. So I have, yeah. in fact, oh, sorry. No, I that, say, that, yeah. yeah. I, I think that that's that she tracked was one where um, there was a, there's a, a kind of increasing blurring of the boundary between the far right movement and the state and between uh, state violence and extra extra parliamentary violence, um, but she also said that you know at different moments it was convenient uh, to externalize certain forms of violence as non-state, right? Um, and this is another shift. She said, like in 1994, when Bart Goldstein goes and shoots up uh, the mosque in Hebron. Uh, that the, the the alibi at the time that was preferred was that, well, he's the, he was an American settler, that this was a kind of ex imported extremism, right? But that that kind of alibi is no longer necessary. And in fact, there's been a, a total embrace of vigilantism as necessary and legitimate, right? So you've got, now you've got Itamar Ben-Gavir like handing out guns to settlers to go and, you know, take over the West Bank. And the acceptance of this kind of vigilante violence and the pushing of the red boundaries of, of the red lines of what is acceptable violence is also a reflection of our global moment as well, right? Where we've seen a shift of um, extreme right parties become more central to governments across Europe as well. And, you know, we might even say the United States has had moments of this. Actually, that's a great point to connect to another topic that came up, I thought, in, in both and that we were also thinking about informally as the connection between um, the uh, a diasporic 
minoritarian presence in other countries and uh, basically extremist majoritarian logic of these in in country ethno nationalism. So I Lori, I totally take your point about the rising ethno nationalism within the places that 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 diaspora is located. And I think we should very much include the United States for that. But nonetheless, those are groups that are operating as minorities within that complex ethno nationalist context in the West also looking back towards, you know, both India or Israel. So, so thoughts about that, about the way that our, you know, that the, these conversations helped us think about that um, tension or that duality? I mean, it's interesting because, you know, I think, again, like, I think one of Natasha's main points is that we have to think about the far right as always already transnational, right? Mm. Um, you know, that Jabotinsky, uh, where was he again? Where would where did he? he Poland. He was Poland, from. That's right. uh, Didn't he Odessa. die in America though, Jabotinsky? Like, I think so. Yeah. yeah, but but it was even in this yeah. moment. I mean, there's a great yeah. book by um, this guy Heller called Jabotinsky's Children, which traces the development of Bitar, the youth wing of the revisionist movement, and the in the transnationalization of that from early on as part of their political project as a way yeah. of gaining power by bringing American Jews into yeah. the picture. And that recent novel, by the way, the Netanyahu's, and we spoke to the author on recall this book, that is fascinating about Jabotinsky's children, about the spiritual heirs and mm. their diasporic impact. Mm. Yeah. So. yeah. So I, I don't, so I think in the, in the Israel case, it's, you know, her, her, her argument is that we have to think of this as, as transnational all the way through. I see. Um, yeah. In the Indian case, I you know I think it's a it's a slightly different trajectory. So, um, the Hindutva project is is also transnational from the outset, insofar as it derives a lot of its uh, inspiration from European fascism, right? So, in that sense, like ideologically, uh, it's part of that same formation, right? Right. It's it's it starts. I mean, Murley has yeah. had a kind of interesting way of pushing it back to the late eight, the late nineteenth um, century. But I think a lot of people see. I mean, if you think about the RSS as the first kind of institutionalization of the Hindutva project, right? The RSS starts in nineteen twenty five, mm -hmm. and they're they're using a lot of the same language, right? I mean, they even one of their founding fathers even travels to Italy to meet Mussolini, right? Wow. So there's, mm -hmm. so, so the kind of, there's a kind of fascist diaspora, <laughs> right? Uh, and in an ideological sense that all of these groups are a part of. Um, but in terms of actually having a presence in the US, for instance, that's much later. I have a question about the, the timing of this. Is it more a case of the Indian diaspora becoming important to the Hindutva project once the Indian diaspora in the US becomes a strong ethnic minority in that context, strong economically, educationally, politically? Yeah, I mean, I think I think initially there's a uh there's an effort to kind of you know exploit the anxiety, the, the sort of cultural anxieties of the diaspora, right? And this is happening not just in the U.S., but in other parts of, so, you know, uh, in Trinidad and, 
Mauritius. Um, uh, and the these, UK itself as well. And or? the UK and yeah. the UK. So you've got uh, um, Hindu nationalist outfits starting organizational work in all of these places. And what they're mainly doing is, you know, doing summer camps for kids and, you know, sort of trying to address the anxieties around cultural loss, right, that are being ex- uh, expressed by uh, by people in the diaspora. Um, and I, I don't I don't know at what point that begins to translate into much more active financial support, right, for the Hindutva project in in India. I mean, it's very clear in the early 90s that that's already happening, right? So there's a movement in, this is where the BJP, which is the sort of political wing of the RSS, really gains gains strength, uh, parliamentary strength, right? Was around this, uh, through this mobilization around um, uh, destroying a 16th century mosque in the northeastern um, Ayodhya. Yes, in the northeastern city of Ayodhya. And, and, you know, and so there's this whole story about how this mosque is actually the birthplace of the god King Ram and needs to be sort of reclaimed. Um, and the only way to sort of avenge this, this hurt to Hindu sentiment is to sort of destroy the mosque and build a temple. And for that, there's a ton of funding that comes from places like, uh, from both the United States and the UK, right? Um, but I'm not sure how early those financial links are forged. Can we tell an interesting story about the analogous forms of diasporic nationalist support to the case of the Jewish diaspora and Israel, which I recognize is different because it's in a way triangulated because most of that Jewish diaspora comes from Europe originally, not from Israel itself, but yeah. The idea of diaspora assumes an originary homeland. And so that is actually part of Zionist ideology to claim that Jews around the world are part of Mm -hmm. a diaspora, whereas Mm -hmm. in fact that is a side product of this nationalist project. So that's a a first sort of thought. So the, the Jews of Europe are not a diaspora. They were folks that the Zionist project could call mm-hmm. in, right? Mm-hmm. Or leaders of the Zionist project. Yeah. Um, and of course, it's the American Jewish people who have been among the most influential and supportive world, you know, as parts of world Jewry for Israel and the Zionist project. And what's interesting there is that, you know, originally, American Jews were not so head up about Zionism. They weren't so, they were maybe supportive kind of from afar, but not in a way that made them want to move there. And um, I actually did an interview with an NYU historian, Zach Lockman, for in the journal Merit, where he he gives this history. But what's interesting to think about is the the history of this, in which it's really the 1960s mm-hmm. where American Judaism becomes more tightly inclined towards Zionism and more tied to Israel and the and the Israeli project, and that's a partly a result of what happened in the 1967 war where Israel came out as victorious. 
Um, and so it was kind of a, a prideful international nationalism that brought them to um, affection for Israel. But it's also been a concerted effort among um, lots of people to create a link between Jewish American identity and Israeli American identity. And you can see that in cultural ways that are also religious, right? Like, so there's an Israeli flag in people's temples from, from that period on. Kids get um, um, drawn into these campaigns to raise money to plant trees in what are essentially settlements in Israel, right? So there are all these ways, you know, similar maybe to what the Hindutva folks do for kids in raising right. a kind of consciousness. The, the 1960s, yeah. and as just, you said, Lori, uh, yeah. is really key because of the 1967 war. But she also said that there's this earlier moment in the 50s when, uh, as part of Americanization, right, uh, you've got a kind of conservative turn uh, away from communism, right, which was the other internationalism that was really important, right? So there's a kind of, yeah, yeah, so there's, you know, there's a kind of, uh, whatever, an internal fracturing of the American Jewish population with um, sort of uh, Americanization being expressed as a disavowal, right, of uh, of Jewish communists. Um, so she talked about that that's as more sort in of her dissertation than in the conversation, I think. Yes, yes, but that's like a, the the precursor to then what happens in the nineteen in the late nineteen sixties. Right. So there's Americanization in the 1950s and then there's kind of a turn towards Israel uh, in the 1960s in the 1960s. And there's an interesting way that these two things kind of converge. Right. Uh, so there's a political conservatism and support for Israel that yeah. kind of comes together. Right? I, 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 I totally agree with the word interesting, but I just also have to say as like somebody who's currently resident at Brandeis University, where the question of suturing Zionism to Jewish identity and saying that every form of anti-Zionism is a form of anti-Semitism is so alive and well, that although it is interesting, it's also profoundly depressing to me to think about that yeah. as a legacy of this, um, you know, this sort of, uh, constituting of American Jewish identity, you know, through the lens of Israel, because, you know, I was sort of, you know, born and raised into the myth, it was a myth as well, of the notion of like the Jewish value in America of cosmopolitan or universalism that embraced minority identity precisely because minority rights could be protected through some kind of universalism, of which the university seemed like you know, an instantiation at least. And now to be at a university that prides itself on particularizing by way of Israel, it just mm. it just hits home to me at this particular moment. Mm. But although I completely agree with you that it is interesting, it's also kind of awful. So I just want to oh. say that. Yeah, it, it is yeah. awful. But it also, yeah. I think, is important for us to recognize the immense amount of work yeah. and institutional energy that has gone into getting yeah. us to this point, wherein yeah. the uh, wherein there's an equation between 
Israel and Judaism, an equation between anti-Israeli critique and anti-Semitism. This has been institutionalized in Europe and in the US, especially these days through the IHRA redefinition of anti-Semitism and yes. specifically the illustrative examples that that state quite baldly that critique of Israel is um, anti-Semitic. But that didn't come out of nowhere, right? Um, this has been a very successful campaign supported by the Israeli state itself. So I think in this moment where we're probably all looking for ways of understanding how any of this can come unraveled, um, recognizing those institutions and the funding sources of those institutions, those funding sources being groups that benefit from tax breaks in the United States. You know, there, there are places where the there are spaces to, to lever out the sutured together. One more thing about Zionism. I mean, it, it's so important to sort of combat these equations, right, between Judaism and Zionism. Um, um, but also because Zionism is becoming a kind of model <laughs> for other long-distance nationalist projects yeah. like Hindutva, right? So you actually yeah. have uh, groups in the United States taking their cues, right, uh, from uh, Zionist strategies. And not just so their cues, but their training. Their training, yeah. So, so you know, you have a, a group like the Hindu American Foundation, which um, is aligned with the Hindu right in India, sharing platforms with the ADL um, and other groups. Um, and one, the most sort of obvious expression of that is uh, is this term Hinduphobia, right? Which is being weaponized in the same way as anti-Semitism is weaponized to shut down criticism of uh, of the Modi government, right? But in the U in the U.S., it, it has a sort of second, uh, mm-hmm. a, a second goal, which is to shut down conversations about caste, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because again, there's this real fear of caste as a fragmenting force, right? Yeah. Which undermines Hindu unity, right? So in the same way that caste is disavowed by the Hindu right in India, you have. You have echoes of that now in the U.S., yeah. right? Yeah. Um, can I just say how beautifully and organically you guys have brought us to that bridge question that I was hoping we would get to towards the end of the conversation? But, but Lori, can you mention more about the training? That's that's news to me. What do you, what? Yeah, yeah, I I don't know that much, but I know that um, people like Azad Issa and um, there are some other people who are doing research on the actual political lobbying groups that are receiving training from Zionist support institutions in the U.S. So Hindutva lobbyists are getting this kind of training. I, I, I can't name the organization. Mm. One thought I that surfaced for me about the bridge as the conversations went on was how strong a bridge um, Islamophobia or Islam as the enemy might be. I mean, because I could see it working perfectly or I could see them not being structural parallel. So what do you guys think? Is it is it important that Islam is a common enemy? Very much so. I yeah. think so. Um, in many ways, you know, Netanyahu individually and Israel writ large has come to stand for a lot of Islamophobic countries as a, a, a strong man to emulate and learn from. Um, 
you know, their bashing, their their mobilization of terrorism and the need for nationalist security that somehow justifies their quashing of any resistance and the oppression of, of Palestinians who are not, by the way, all Muslim, but for the sake of an ethno-nationalist project who's counting the 20% Christians. Um, and, and so I think that Israel kind of stands for this. And you see this kind of bromance between Modi and Netanyahu at different moments. You know, what do you think, Ajanta? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> um, there's all this sort of uh, these exposés now of <clears throat> um, uh, about the Modi troll, like the Modi's troll army uh playing a hugely consequential role in um generating disinformation about October 7th right so some of the most kind of lurid uh um social media uh tweets about uh beheaded babies and you know raped women have all come out of india so this is like the this is what this is what like Hindutvites in India do all the time, right? Um, and and they've just kind of repurposed their like domestic disinformation campaign uh, for for this new you know for this new kind of phenomenon. There was also a final topic, Laurie, that I know you had a lot of thoughts about that I hope we got to, which is sort of the nominalism question or whether mm -hmm. it matters what we call a spade, I suppose. Um, so yeah, do you want to? Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, yeah. I was actually interested in what both of you thought about this, and the the question is when and how we apply the term fascism to any of these movements or overall projects, and you know, Natasha and I think Murli, um, maybe not in the conversation, but in other places, has talked about the necessity of being careful of how we apply fascism to what's going on, because if everything is fascism, then what is it really? And we need to preserve this term for really extreme cases. Um, but I, I have gained a lot of insight from reading some Af Black American authors who talk about the fact that you know, fascism, slavery is fascism. Even Robert Paxton, the great theorist of fascism, has referenced the Ku Klux Klan as perhaps the earliest fascist organization, or recognizing colonialism as a fascist um, structure. It's a style of politics, right? And so this idea of preserving fascism for um, really extreme cases, we have to think about extreme from whose perspective? And so a point that I made when we talked with Natasha is that it seems like Israel as a fascist state has only come into common discourse once the Israeli state started turning against Jewish people. Um, and that's with, you know, with the judicial overhaul. So, you know, the, the Jewish majority was starting to feel the, the sharp end of fascism, whereas, of course, Palestinians have been living under a military dictatorship since the beginning. Um, so I just I actually wondered what both of you thought about how we use this term and what use is it? I mean, the other thing that that she said, well, that both of them said was that there are there are if you just trace the kind of 
genealogy of these movements, there is a shared history, yeah. right? Uh, so uh, I think in 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 both respects, both attending to that shared history and not being, um, you know, uh, blindsided by the fact that you know these were populations that were subject to forms of colonial and uh, fascist power themselves, right? Not letting that sort of blind us to this family resemblance, <laughs> not just family resemblance, but actual sort of historical connections. Um, so I think that's one thing. But the other is what you said, Laurie, like being self-aware about when we when we are willing to use the term, right? Um, and, and, and what that says about normalized violence right so whether you're talking about black people in in in, you know post-reconstruction south or kashmiris right uh from their vantage point the u.s and india have been fascist for a very long time right uh from the vantage point of kashmiris india has is a settler colonial state um so I, I do think that that's a really, really important reminder. Um, you know that these ter- that these not just that these terms are uh, important to specify, but that uh, we need to be we need to be conscious of why they're not used. <laughs> you know, uh, for for particular instances, right? And and part of why they're not used is because after World War II, the term carried a certain ideological slash moral weight, right? It now means something bad. I mean, we might see that shifting again as people, you know, proudly claim to be fascist and the whole notion of a liberal- Illiberal democracy. I was, oh, sorry. Yeah, Yeah. illiberal democracy, I was going to say, is the phrase that I think does a lot of cover work for that because you can somehow, it's respectable to be an illiberal Democrat, which- as far as I can tell, it does mean a fascist, right? Because it means right. <laughs> majoritarian control of the country on the basis of like some assumed demographic ideal or real real Hungary or whatever. But, and yeah. that's why I, I object to, you know, this term um, eth- ethnic democracy or ethno-democracy yeah. that um, puts the emphasis on democracy without yeah. mentioning that it's democracy for some. You guys are the experts here, but in, in terms of your point about the genealogy, I thought that wonderful detail that Natasha brought up about how the, I can't even remember what Zionist organization it was, but they used to wear brown shirts and then the memo yes. went out in the 1920s. Oh, you guys right. got to switch to blue shirts. And so somehow like putting on blue shirts that totally insulates you from the genealogical connection to the brown shirts. In uniform, doing the exercises. Wow. Right. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I would love to end by sort of semi springing on you guys something that we always do and which actually agenda you remember it from the last time, but it's recallable books, meaning people who enjoyed this conversation do. Is there a book you would like to think you would like to mention and say, you know, they would ought, they ought to go off and take a look at that book. And Laurie, I know you already have one in mind. So I've got multiple, so it's kind of hard to choose, but one that I haven't mentioned in our conversation so far is a book called Revolutionary Yiddishland, A History of Jewish Radicalism. 
and mm. it's it's quite a remarkable book it's it translated from french into english not too long ago but it's a kind of um compilation of ethnographic interviews of Jewish people who have refused Zionism. Mm -hmm. um, specifically, it's focused largely, I think, around World War II. But I think it's important for these narratives that and histories that refuse the nationalist monopolization of history telling in this case, refusing the Zionist telling where all Jews belong to Israel yeah. is really important to keep alive. Um, and that's why I think, you know, the work of uh, Natasha's work itself is really important because that's a kind of the 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 history of the, the extreme right in Zionism has not been forefronted for obvious reasons in especially American Jewish understanding of Israel. Yeah. That's awesome. And uh, Agenda, I'm just stalling a bit, so I'll go first to give you time to, yeah, to think yeah, of yeah. one. But um, uh, first of all, I want to say, just apropos of the nominalism, I forgot to mention this before, Laurie, but I really appreciate the point that you made kind of in passing and very politely about using the word diaspora or, or diasporic to think about the Jewish, you know, the description of Jews in Europe as if they were somehow dispersed rather than like of that place and how mm -hmm. that might be, you know, an ethno-nationalist move that European anti-Semites would make in the 19th century, but that it was in Israel's interest to make it in a later time. And I think growing up as a, you know, in a Jewish family in the 1970s, I probably just, in, you know, incorporated that as simply the language of description. So I, I really love that corrective. And I guess I would connect that to the book I will choose. It's really easy because I already mentioned it. The recall, we did a recall this book conversation with Joshua Cohen, whose novel, The Netanyahu's, which is about one of these children of Jabotinsky, literally Bibi Netanyahu's father, who himself Benzio and Netanyahu. And it's this hilarious comedic romp of like the worst job interview on earth. So, but he comes to America, to assimilationist 1950s America and meets this kind of 1950s Philip Roth type character who just wants to be a, you know, a secular Jew, a Jewish historian of the 18th century, 18th century America. And then he just has this kind of Zionist, um, the, the Zionist Jabotinskyite is sort of foisted on this secular Jewish family. So it's a description of this weekend from hell from both told from the perspective <laughs> of both the Zionist outsider and the kind of would-be assimilationist American Jew. One of my go-to books to get at the, just the kind of lived reality of um, of religion, <laughs> right? And the sort of, um, the remarkable heterogeneity of South Asia uh, is Susan Bailey's Saints, Goddesses, and Kings. Um, and the subtitle is Muslims and Christians in South Indian Society. Um, and it's a it's a it's a historical ethnography. It's a historical ethnography. Um, and it's just a remarkable account of, yeah, of of just religious plurality, um, social dynamism, right? And um, and even though, you know, she doesn't talk about Hindu nationalism, it sort of throws into relief the violence of the project, right? You know, this effort to sort of impose this kind of monolithic history on a, 
on a sub. I mean, it's a subcontinent. Right? It's called it's a called a subcontinent for a reason. Um, <laughs> so uh, I think that book um, is one that I I really cherish. Um, Lori yeah, I mean, was there's... waving around a different book. I don't know if you want to see. You want to rise to that. I mean, this is this is one that we we actually referenced in uh, our conversation with Murli, uh, which is uh, the work of Christophe Jaffrelo, who's, you know, I think the the most important scholar of the Hindu right. Um, uh, and his most recent book is this sort of amazing, rich account of, uh, of Modi, right? And, and what, uh, the sort of Modi phenomenon has done both to the Hindu right and to India more broadly. And it's called Modi's India. Um, what's the subtitle, Lori? Hindu nationalism and the rise of ethnic democracy. Um, yeah, yeah. That's, that is awesome. Um, okay, I think with that, I just want to thank you guys so much and say that this, you know, wide ranging conversation and also the two conversations before it that you hosted and brought to recall this book, which were just wonderful, has been a real pleasure. Um, so the same thanks I would also extend to those of you listening at home. And if you enjoyed this conversation, definitely check out the recall this book archive at our website. Um, but for all of us here at the podcast and also on behalf of Elizabeth Ferry as well, um, Agenda, Lori, thanks a ton. It's It's been great. Um, Thank you, John. Thank you so right. much for letting us be involved. Recall This Book is the creation of John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. Sound editing is by Kamaya Bagla, and music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy. We gratefully acknowledge support from Brandeis University and its Mandel Center for the Humanities. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, or suggestions for future episodes. Finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please forward it to five people or write a review and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.